Well, good morning again. Wow, this is like, you guys, I promise it's okay. You can say good morning, it's fine. So I might ask a couple questions in the sermon. I want to invite you to, to engage with me. Uh, the, we're starting a two-week series as we continue in, in the book of John chapter one, and it's called The Greatest Man to Ever Live. Now, before I tell you who it is, you can guess in your brains, it's not Jesus. I, I know, I know. You should be like, uh, what is going on? Oh, just wait, just wait. So uh, later last year, 2021, a man visited our church for the first time. And uh, he was in his 60s, and he had recently come to trust in Christ. And we had a, a really great time talking. We spent about 30 minutes just chatting. He was asking really good questions, trying to figure out what we believed in certain things. And I really appreciated He had two big things he wanted to make sure he wanted to make sure that we believed that the Bible was true, and that's what we taught from. Uh, that was number one. Number, number two, he wanted to make sure that we had the gospel straight. He wanted, he wanted to make sure that we weren't preaching some other message than the one Jesus preached. And I, I just loved my time with, with this guy. Toward the end of our conversation, it got a little bit more personal, and he started sharing about his life, his divorce, and really just decades of living um, apart from knowing Jesus. And in the middle of him sharing, he stops and he looks at me and he asks me a question that I have never been asked in all 20 years of pastoral ministry. He said this, Pastor, I want to be great. How do I become great? And then he paused and there was silence. And if I'm being honest, my heart started to fill in the blanks with his motivations. And I thought to myself, I probably have quite a bit to say, but I don't know what to say right now. By the way, Pastoral Wisdom 101, when you don't know what to say, keep your mouth shut. So I sat for a moment, but then he clarified. And here's what he said. He said, when I die, I want Jesus to look at me and say, well done, good and faithful servant. This guy didn't know a lot, but he'd been reading through the gospels. And one of the things that he saw was that the disciples were struggling. They were like, we want to be the best in the kingdom. We want to be next to you. We want authority and we want position. And, and what he had done is he had begun studying what does Jesus think is great. And all this guy wanted, he didn't want to become the greatest Christian. He didn't want to become the greatest at something. He wanted to look Jesus in the face and have Jesus say back to him what he says to those who have lived for him well, well done, good and faithful servant. So I want you to listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. He says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Is that what you expected? Some of you are like, I think I had a hunch. Some of you were like, that came out of left field. Who is John the Baptist? It's probable that most people have not heard um, a series on the life of John the Baptist over the next two weeks. We're gonna dig into his life, his message, really what made him great. And then next week, we're gonna talk about his execution and the events that led up to that because John the Baptist did not die a normal death. So right before Jesus' three-year ministry launches, 
John the Baptist came on the scene. And in Israel, the dude became a celebrity. And if we're going to be honest, he's a weirdo. Like, part of the reason he became popular is because he was sort of like a freak show. And for food, John ate wild locusts and honey. Now, I, I have tried to figure out any biblical rationale that that would be the case. But apparently, when you live in the wilderness, you eat your eating options are fairly limited. So he would eat locusts, and I, rumor has it they're not great, so what do you dip them in? It's like a chocolate-covered locust, functionally. But this was his, this was his food. For clothing, his, his clothing actually made a statement. And I'll tell you why he made a statement. Because he wore cam, camel's hair with a leather belt. And what he was doing, this was a functional costume. He was dressing this way on purpose because this seems to be the way the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament dressed. And so rumors started spreading about him. Was he Elijah reincarnate? By the way, Village Church, the answer is no, we don't believe in that because the Bible doesn't believe in that. So then he chooses to go live and preach in a weird place that the Bible calls the wilderness, the Jews would call the desert. To give you like an idea of where it is distance-wise, it's about an eight-hour walk or hike from Jerusalem where the vast majority of the Jewish people were in the first century. So if you were going to go out to see John the Baptist and you lived in the vicinity of Jerusalem, you're talking about an eight-hour hike to go see this guy. Now, again, some came because he was a, a freak show, but they didn't have TV, internet, movies, all that other stuff. So you hear that this is crazy guy preaching out of the wilderness. Let's make a day of it. So they would go out, and it doesn't matter whatever their motivation was, because they would come back, most, and they would come back, and they would look at their friends and family, and they would say something like, you have to go see this guy for yourself. Well, what was going on? Well, what are people doing? You need to go see this guy for yourself. What's interesting is that not everybody came back. In fact, there were some people who went out and heard him preach, and they were so moved. They were so convicted by what he said. They believed the entire nation of Israel needed the specific message that John the Baptist had, and they became John the Baptist's disciples. They committed their life to his message. They committed their life to preaching and to baptizing, doing all the things that John the Baptist was doing, and they probably ate locusts and wild honey, dressed in camel's hair, and had a leather belt on. Like This was what they would commit their life to. Here's my question. What made John the Baptist, in Jesus' eyes, apparently his opinion is the most important, right? What made John the Baptist the greatest man born of woman, which I don't know other ways other men are born, doesn't matter, ever? <laughs> and so what Pastor Craig and Pastor Alex and I did, Pastor Craig's at Village Church East, Pastor Alex at Alliance Bible Church, and myself, about 70 to 80% of our sermons we preached together. So we aggregated every scripture that we could find on John the Baptist, categorized them, and said, what made this guy great? And the answer was so simple. It was so easy. In fact, like nothing I'm going to tell you, like if I tell this to you and you go, whoa, mind blown, like you might be a newer Christian, but, but I'm, I'm telling you, if you've had all read the Bible a little bit or you've heard me preach a couple times, this shouldn't be surprising. In fact, I think we were so encouraged by the answers because here's what it means. It means standing before Jesus and having him look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Isn't this unattainable thing only for preachers, missionaries, and those who are martyred? It's actually something that every person can stand before Jesus 
live a faithful life, broken, fallen, yes, but faithful, and hear Jesus look at you and say, I'm really proud of you. Like, how do you know? I, I, when I saved you, I knew you were going to be a sinner, but I am so proud of you. Well done, good and faithful servant. So here's, here's the first thing that we, we discovered. John told the whole truth from God's word. Now, that, that might not make a lot of sense at first, but I want to take some time and I want to explain this to you, but I have an encouragement to you. It's so simple that mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, students, singles, you can do this. You can get your brain around what God wants people to hear from his word, and you have the ability to give it away to people. So you have to understand the political context to understand the full weight of what this meant for, for John, John the Baptist. Over the past seven centuries, before the first century, for seven plus centuries, Israel has been occupied and oppressed by other nations. And if you go back to Old Testament law and the book of Leviticus specifically, but it's all over the place, here's what you're going to find. If you are part of the people of Israel and there is a foreign army occupying you and enslaving you, this is always a sign of judgment by God for your sin. So if the people of Israel ever find themselves in this situation, God allowed it. God allowed it because they had rebelled and this was their di discipline. And so here's what you find. You, you find in the first century, they are occupied by Rome. And before Rome, it was Greece. And before Greece, you have Persia and Babylon. It's just one empire after another, oppressing and overtaking them. And they are exhausted and they are frustrated. And here, here's what they want. They want to be freed. They want to be freed from Roman oppression because that is what God said in his word he wants for them. But here's what we have. We have John the Baptist in the first century in Israel, and there are all of these Jewish spiritual leaders teaching about how to get out of Roman oppression. They all have a message. So the Pharisees, you've heard of the Pharisees, right? Their basic message was just be good, be a good boy, be a good boy, follow the law. That's how you do it, just be good. Now, they were politically compromised. Then you have the Sadducees. If you're ever in kids' church, they were sad, you see, because they did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the angelic realm. They had almost no view of the afterlife. They were functionally cultural Christians who had no real convictions about anything spiritual whatsoever. They were completely politically compromised. And their basic MO was, we're going to change the world through law, right? That's, and you know Christians like this. We're like, if we just get the right party in place, like the, the church is going to explode. It's going to be amazing. God's going to do great things. And, and so you know people like this. Then you have the zealots. And, and their basic message was change through chaos. If I could compare them to anybody, they're like Antifa. Like they want to blow things up and just wreck the establishment, break it from its core. And so the zealots were creating chaos everywhere they went. They would start riots and do crazy things. And, and again, their, their goal was to destabilize Rome and their occupation in Israel. You had another group of people called the Essenes, and the Essenes, they remind me of the Amish people today. They're like, you know, we're going we're gonna to take our stuff and our family, we're going we're gonna to move far away to our own little monastic community, and we're going to teach our kids, we're going to separate them from the world, and that's how we're going to get away from all of this. We're just going to separate, we're going to run, put our head between, between our legs, and act like it's not happening. Now, listen, it's not like all of these people's messages were inherently terrible. I mean, the Pharisees, be good people. Should we be good people, Village Church? The answer is, yeah, it's not a bad thing. The Sadducees are like, let's, let's affect political change so that we can better society. Should Christians want to enact better 
political policies for the betterment of society? The answer is, yeah, that's not bad. That is a good thing. The, the zealots, they're a little bit more shady to me, but it's like sometimes Christians got to need to learn to like stand up for themselves and like, I don't know, maybe through love, learn to fight a little bit better. Maybe we can learn a lesson from the zealots. These scenes, they're not all bad either. It's like, are there times when you just have to take your family out of the world and protect them for a season? And the answer is yes. But here's, here's the problem. None of these messages were the message that God told the prophets to tell the people when you're in occupation. These were all like kind of feel-good messages, but they weren't the real message. And there's a significant issue. When the secondary message becomes the primary message, it becomes a false message. Yeah, be good. But if the primary message is be good, do good, it's not a message. It's a false message. And so all of these people are preaching in their own little Jewish camps of leadership, and they got all their little followers, and they're all telling them the thing. But John the Baptist is sitting here, and here's what he's saying. None of these are preaching what God told the prophets to preach when the people are occupied. When you are under the judgment of God, being good and having better political policies and running away doesn't change a thing. When you are under the judgment of God, you need reconciliation with God on God's terms. And we don't get to look at God and say, yeah, your word says, here's how we're reconciled, but I'm gonna do it this way. When you have a broken relationship with somebody that you broke, you play by their terms and you ask them, what would it take for us to be reconciled? And God gave his people a very, very clear message. So John the Baptist, he has one message and it is the message of the prophets. It is the antidote to occupation. And he seems to be one of the only preachers in Israel that gets it. Here it is. Repent and be baptized. Let me, let me just translate this a little bit. Repent means change your mind, change your life. You're gonna live according to God's word and then go public with your decision. Like you are now publicly a follower of God who is casting away their old life and you're entering into a new life. Now something I appreciate about John is John shows a location to preach that I would say was appropriate for their cultural moment. Now, if I were to get up and I were to take a bullhorn and go to the Bartlett train stop right here and tell everybody, you're under the judgment of God, you're going to hell, you would probably say, fueling, shut that down. Can we just walk away for a little bit here? Like, like they can't even get away from you. Would you just relax a little bit? There are culturally insensitive ways to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And even if those methods happen to work every once in a while, by and large, the negative impact can be pretty severe. But here's what happens, like in church, right? You're here, and you can get up and leave anytime you want. But this is a place, and I, and I do think it's kind of weird, but it's cool, that you can come to a church, and someone is going to open up God's word, and they're going to tell you what it says, and this is a socially acceptable, appropriate place to do this. Or online, you're allowed to put content online, because people can go if they want and leave if they want. And so John the Baptist does, does this. He goes over to the wilderness. And I, and I wonder if John was like, like okay, well, well, God, there's an Old Testament prophecy that says that this person's gonna be preaching in the wilderness, so I wanna do that. But like, who's gonna hear me? I'm eight hours away. And, and I imagine the conversation, God being like, listen, John, it's gonna be fine. You go to where you're supposed to go. You do what you're supposed to do. And I will bear the fruit that I want to bear. 
And so John the Baptist also reminds me of Paul when Paul would go into a city to preach the gospel. He didn't just go anywhere. He went to the places where it was appropriate to preach. And he went to those places and he trusted God to bear the fruit and to bring the people. This is very consistent with how Jesus does it. Paul does it. It's the model of most everybody in the Bible. And so rabbis at this time, they would find a place and they would teach and they would start teaching their doctrine, their ways, etc. And if people followed you, great, but you couldn't control that. Well, with John, he seemed to have tapped into a cultural moment. And so here's what happens. Eight hours a day, eight hours away, every single day, more and more people are coming to hear him. Because he seems to be one of the only guys, one of the only religious leaders or teachers or rabbis in Israel at the time who is preaching the same message that God has told him he should preach. Uh, I want to show you this. I want to read to you a passage from Leviticus chapter 26. And God is going to instruct Israel, if you do the following things, then you're going to experience occupation. And if you're occupied, here's the antidote, the way to get out of it. So Leviticus chapter 26, we'll start in verse 14. He says, if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. Verse 16 goes on later and says, you shall sow your seed in vain and your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you. And so the Jewish leaders are experiencing this judgment of people, the Romans who hate them, are ruling over them. And the Jewish leaders, it's like they're not reading the Bible you're under the judgment of God. Why are you telling them the solution and the antidote that is opposite of what the word of God says? So here's the solution. Verse 40 in Leviticus tells the solution. But if they confess their iniquity, their sin, and the, the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant. Here's what John the Baptist did. He told the whole truth, the simple truth, nothing but the truth. How does, how does a people under the judgment of God get out away from that judgment. Confession of sins and repentance. That's how. Let me, let me just speak for a moment. This is the same message that we have today. We now have the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so how does somebody born into sin, separated from God under his judgment, get out from being under the judgment of God? We come before God on his terms and we confess we are sinners and we have fallen short of your standards. And because of our sin, we, I, am under your judgment. And you have told me the way out. And the way out is through trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ on my behalf. 
And the blood of Jesus is more powerful than anything you can imagine. Take the worst person you know, and the blood of Christ is stronger. So that any person who trusts in Christ, any person who confesses their sins and believes in the life, death, and resurrection, God's promise is that you were forgiven, and you were saved, and you were spared once and for all and forever from my judgment. And John, John the Baptist, gets up and he preaches, you're under judgment, and the way out of judgment is confession of sins. This is how you do it. Mark chapter one, verse five, tells this story, and it says, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem, they were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. What I appreciate is that the Bible's antidote is not just simply like, hey, you and God have a personal moment, say you're sorry, and then you go back to your normal life as if nothing happened and nothing is changing. In fact, what John did is he had every single person who confessed their sins be baptized. Now, if you are a Christian in the room, you're probably familiar with Christian baptism, but before Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, baptism was a Jewish rite and practice. And so here was the basic reason that somebody who was a, a, before Jesus would be baptized. Uh, baptism was by and large a ritual of cleansing for a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, who was coming to become a follower of God. And so baptism was usually something by Gentiles who wanted to become a part of the nation of Israel, the people of God, by trusting in God. And so that's what it would be for. So it's weird that John would look at a bunch of Jewish men and women and children and say, you need to be baptized. They might say, but wait a minute, baptism is for Gentiles who want to become Jews. And here's what he's saying. You are Jews by blood only. You are not Jews in your heart. Your body is circumcised, but your heart isn't circumcised. You believe you and God are okay because your parents were Christians, because your grandma prayed for you, because when you were three, you were scared to death of going to hell, so you asked God to save you from hell, but there's been no evidence of that all of your life. You believe maybe because you went to church a couple times and you were like, yeah, I went to church, I'm good. Maybe you go every single week so that kind of you feel better than like people around you. Maybe you're the person who just is like, you're honestly, you're really good. Like you have a super strong conscience and compared to all the people you work with, even your spouse and kids, like you're a good person, you're all right. And John the Baptist would look at you and say, none of it matters. It doesn't matter the rite, the ritual, the thing done to you. It doesn't matter the family you come from. It doesn't matter if by blood you're a Christian, which is not a thing. The only way you become a follower of God is by confession of sin and belief in Jesus Christ. And so he's looking at all these Jews who are like, we're good because we're Jews. And he's saying, you are under the judgment of God, and the only way for you and God to be made right is the confession of sins and coming to God on his terms. This was a message, by the way, that was probably no more popular then than it was now. But the people, they heard it, and when they heard, they were broken. And the people came confessing their sins, and Jews were getting baptized. So cool. And John had to sit there and be like, all these people, all these people, day after day, person after person, and they are willing to be baptized for repentance of sins. I would have loved to have just watched this happen.
The second thing that made John great was very simple. In fact, it's so simple. Everyone can do this. He pointed people to Jesus. Like how simple, right? He, he understood, I'm not the main character in my life. I think about myself all the time. Do you? I'm tempted to make myself the main character in my life all the time. But, but actually, Jesus is the main character in his life. And he knew that he was born to point people to Jesus. Listen to what happens in John chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Again, this is John the Baptist. John, the apostle who's writing the book, two different Johns, so don't get that confused. This is John the Baptist. He didn't write any of the Bible. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. And then verse eight says this, he was not the light. He was not the light. He wasn't the point. But he came to bear witness about the light. How did John know this? Easy. His mom and his dad told him. John, ever since he was a kid, I'm sure. You're not the point. How do they know this? They were given a prophecy about their son. Before I read it, let me tell you this. Do you need a prophecy to tell you the reason you or your children were born? Nope. We have the word. Prophecies help. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'd love if there was a prophecy about me before I was born that my parents said, prophetic word over your life. That would be awesome. You don't need a prophetic word over your life to know you exist to point people to Jesus. Here's the prophecy. Luke chapter 1, verse 15. He will be great before the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So that by the time Jesus comes on the scene, this message of repentance and judgment has swept through the nation of Israel. These people are ready as a nation for Jesus Christ. They, they are ready for the Messiah to come. And John got the message loud and clear. John chapter one, verse 19. Here, here's, John's, here's what John says. It says, the Jews, they sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask John, who are you? I love this. The, the religious leaders are selling their minions. Go figure out who this strange guy is who eats locusts and honey. John confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I love this line, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And here's what they're thinking. They're thinking the reincarnation of Elijah. And he answers to that. And he goes, uh, I am not. Then they say, okay, okay, okay. Are you the prophet? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we've been waiting for? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he doesn't give them a direct answer. In fact, what he does, he quotes a prophecy that's 700 years old that was applied to Elijah. And here's what it says. John responds. They say, who are you? He goes, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. 
Here's my message. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah had said. Here's what, here's what John the Baptist knew about himself. John knew, because of a prophecy over his life, that his job was to preach the same message as Elijah to a nation that is under the judgment of God, and that message is repent. He also knew his job was to go to the places where Elijah preached, into the wilderness. And just to make sure everybody knew, he dressed up like Elijah, not because he's the reincarnation, but because he is bearing in his soul the same message for the people of Israel that Elijah himself had. He knew his point. He knew why he existed. Now, this is, gets even better. John chapter three, like the first couple chapters, John the Baptist is all over the book of John. They're trying to get him to figure out, like say, who are you really? And he says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have, I've been sent before him. The one who, who has the bride is the bridegroom, he says. He gives it an analogy. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's coming. Therefore, the joy of mine is now complete. That's weird, but let me, let me translate. I'm, I'm not the main character. When you go to a wedding, it's the bride and the bridegroom. They're the point. I'm just the dude on the side. And when the bride and the bridegroom come in, I'm, just, I'm rejoicing, and I'm here to tell you the bride and the bridegroom have arrived. And I'm not the point of this. It's Jesus. And then his next line, it's one of my favorite in all of scripture. John chapter three, verse 30, he says this. He must increase. I must, what's the word? Decrease. And this, this was applied by him almost immediately. At the end of John chapter one, when Jesus shows up, do you know what John does? John gives Jesus his disciples. Uh, your disciples, that's like for pastors, like how big's your church, right? It's like this like thing of bragging or something. He gives Jesus his disciples because who is it better to follow, John or Jesus? Jesus. And so John actually begins to wind down his public ministry as soon as Jesus starts preaching and doing his public ministry because the two, they don't need to compete with each other. And the moment Jesus comes, he steps aside and says, this is the main character. Our job, my job, is to point you to him. And I, I bet it was tempting. John had people coming from all over Israel to hear him preach. I'm guessing there were days he might have struggled with ego. But when push came to shove in those moments, when Jesus shows up, he says, that is the Christ. That is the Lamb of God. That is the Savior of the world. It is him, my disciples. Go follow Jesus. And I love this. This is so accessible. This is so understandable. Are you a student? Your job, in the right circumstances, people will inevitably see your faith your job is to point people to Jesus. Are you a mom and a dad? Your job is to point your kids to Jesus. Do you have a job? Do you have neighbors? Your job is not to be rude. It's not to be a jerk. It is to love well and point people to Jesus. I think one of the greatest things that we can do as Christians is just pray, God, would you allow me the opportunity to love those in my life and my work and to point them to Jesus? I'd rather them not leave thinking I'm a jerk. I'd rather them thinking positive things about Jesus. Lord, would you help me? Would you open up doors? Would you, would you go before me? Because my life, I am here 
to point people to Jesus. Uh, I want to share with you two simple cell watts as we wind down. And the first is, to be truly great, we will all have to resist spiritual narcissism and figure out ways to make Jesus the point. I'm, <clears throat> I'm guessing in America and probably everywhere around the world, this seems to be like, I don't know, a, a, a common problem. True greatness in the eyes of God is seen when we kill self-centeredness. And we make this thing about Jesus. We point people to him. We don't withhold really essential parts of the word of God that keep people from Jesus. Spiritual narcissism makes you the most important person in your life. I want to share with you two specific ways we see this fleshed out. The first is in your own life. And here are some examples of how spiritual narcissism works. Spiritual narcissists treat God as if God exists for them rather than them existing for God. So, so why are you here? You are here, not at the village church, on this earth to point people to Jesus, to know him and point people to him, to make much of him, to bring him glory. That is not convenient for the narcissist. When you look at a narcissist and say, this place doesn't revolve around you, they get mad. And so that's number one. Spiritual narcissists decide truth for themselves. They become functionally God. And they decide, well, I, this is what I believe truth is. The only way to not be a spiritual narcissist is to have God himself tell you what truth is and to submit to that reality. And he has done that through Jesus, the living word, and the written word. Spiritual narcissists also demand that God meets their expectations. So when God allows, ordains, or permits something in your life that you don't like, the spiritual narcissist gets mad at God, pushes him away as if, as if you are the most important person and God owes you. Now I want to be clear. Is there a spiritual narcissist in every single person in this room? The answer is yes. Which is why every one of us, yours truly, need to push this away. Spiritual narcissism um, makes us into consumers who take, take, take when God has designed us to be sacrificial, giving servants who love and build one another up. And, and narcissists love being served, but they don't love getting their feet dirty and serving, or their hands dirty, whichever way you say that. Here's the second way that narcissism creeps in. It creeps into churches. Have you ever thought about a church as narcissistic? I have. I have a lot to say on this, so I'm going to, I'm going to pace my words and keep it short. If you want more of my opinions, we could talk privately. A few years ago, I visited a church when I'm not preaching here. Um, often I love being at other churches and just kind of, especially if they're friends of mine, I love hearing my friends preach and see what God's doing in their life. And, and so every once in a while, I'll go to different churches and uh, see if I know people. And, and it's actually kind of fun because almost nobody knows me anywhere. So I get to go in and just kind of be myself and just sit there. And, and uh, a few years back, I went to a church in the area and I left so disturbed. I want to be clear. Um, they preached the gospel. Um, they preached the word. It was all there. But from the beginning of the service, all the way to the end, whether it was an announcement, a video, a sermon, an altar call, the answer to every question was never once Jesus. The answer to every question was so-and-so church. Everything that was celebrated was not God moving. 
but how God used the church in that person's life. How if you want your life to change, the answer is the church. Be aware, when a church defines spiritual growth by only things that make the church bigger, are you giving? Are you serving? Right? Are you in our groups? If those are the metrics for discipleship and spiritual growth, and those are primarily it, like that's, that's how, if you want to grow, do these four things. Be careful because it's very easy and people, we all, we all love this. We all want to be a part of something big and wonderful and it's very easy to fall prey to church and pastor narcissism. Village church is the answer to nothing. Village church is a place, and every local church, by the way, that brings you to Jesus and connects you with people who connect you to Jesus, that meets maybe some of your needs so that you can be closer to Jesus and help other people meet Jesus, where you can worship Jesus. Like, we gotta keep this straight in our brain. Village Church exists to point people to Jesus. And the poll in American and global Christianity, and really it's, it's an easy way to grow a church quick, is to make the church the main thing. Now let me just flip, let me switch gears for a moment. I love when people love their church. And it is, I don't have any issues. Like we have Village Church shirts if you serve in something. Like, like I love that I, my last name is Fueling. I love being a Fueling. I love my family, et cetera. I would have no issue wearing a shirt if we had like some crest, some cool logo. Like I'd happily wear it. But I don't wear it because my family's better than your family. I wear it because it's my family. I wear it because it's, it's personal to me. And, and part of the challenge in church narcissism comes when we structure ourselves as we're better than them. The, the, the church in Revelation in Ephesus, uh, they had a really damning response from Jesus. They had awesome doctrine, like really good doctrine. And Jesus looks at them and basically says, let me summarize, I will shut your church down because your hearts are cold. And they would probably look at the other churches in the first century, the Ephesian church, and say, we're better than them. We have better doctrine. We do better than them. And Jesus is like, no. Stop comparing yourself, number one. I, I will, you're missing the main thing. Yeah, you have good doctrine, but you don't love me. Your hearts are cold to me. And so this is not about putting other churches down or comparing other churches. I even hesitated to give the analogy, and, and, and I don't even want to tell you who it is, and I wouldn't even do that publicly anyways. But the point is it's so easy to fall into this trap because we love being a part of something. And it's okay to be proud of your church, and to wear it, but make sure that your wearing of your church logo wherever you go is not one of arrogance or prestige. I'm proud of this place because it points me to Jesus and because this is my family. And I, I, I love it. I love my last name. I love my spiritual last name. I love the people that God's put me to community with. Like, I delight in this family. But this is not about better than. And church narcissism, it's a real thing. It's a real thing. It's easy to fall into. Here's the second so what I want to share with you. My dissertation is done on that, sorry. <laughs> to be truly great, don't just confess Christ, obey his word. So the man from the beginning of my sermon um, who asked me, how do I become great? I thought about it after he explained what he meant by great, and that was great to God. And the answer was so simple. I looked at him and I said, number one, Trust in Jesus. And I could affirm in this guy, I said, you have clearly trusted in Christ. I, I, I want to tell you, even though you're in your 60s, like you have done the first thing. You have confessed your sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the second thing that I would tell you. 
If you want to be great, obey God's word. It's not going to be easy all the time. It's going to be inconvenient. And this guy's newer to the faith, so he, don't, he knows very little. And I just said, as you learn, as you learn, obey. If the word of God teaches something and you believe something different, maybe give God credit that he's smarter than you and change your mind and agree with him. Or maybe there's a behavior in your life that you were taught was normal and good. And then as you open up the Bible and you see that, that God actually calls it sin, agree with God and live according to the word of God. If you want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, it's not for the perfect person. But I think it's for the person who's trusted in Christ. And as they live and as they read through scriptures and they see what God wants and what God believes, they align their mind and their heart and their life to the word of God. I remember he looked at me and he said, now that, by God's grace, I think that is something I understand and I can walk away with. Then his next, his next question and the next discussion that we had was around, um, can, can the blood of Christ really cover all of my sin? Now, he knew the answer, but don't we all ask this sometimes? Like, you look back at your life and you're like, that was a doozy. <laughs> and he just needed to be reminded again, the blood of Christ is potent. <laughs> it is more powerful than you can possibly imagine. And God has yet to meet one person with enough sin or a bad enough sin that the blood of Christ can't cover it. And that would be my hope for every one of you in this room. I don't know what your life has, has, has encompassed. I don't know the ridiculous, terrible things you've done. I do know this, that the blood of Christ is capable and powerful to save you. I do know this, the antidote, the remedy to being under the judgment of God is only one thing, and that's confessing your sins and believing in Jesus Christ. And I do know that the way to be great before God is to be somebody who just sees what the Bible says and obeys. One of, the first, one of the things I love about the beginning is it's the first thing that God says is be baptized. And you're like, I believe. He says, be baptized. So I'm going to go be baptized, right? Simple stuff. And this is where greatness is one of those things that it's not for the preacher. It is for every person to trust in Christ and to obey his word. And I hope that doesn't blow your mind, but encourages you at the simplicity of walking with Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, I am so glad that... You are patient and gracious because we can be dense as doornails. I am so glad for guys like John the Baptist who knew your word enough to rise above all the secondary messages that were filling Israel. When your word was so clear what the primary message was that people under judgment are removed from judgment through confession and belief. I'm so thankful that Jesus Christ is the point, and it's not John the Baptist, it's not me, it's not ourselves. But God, I'm also thankful that the blood of Christ covers me when I forget and act like I am the point. And so we all are very, very grateful for your faithfulness, despite our faithlessness, for the power of the blood of Christ, despite how evil we have been in our private lives I am grateful for forgiveness. I am grateful for your word. I'm grateful for this church family. I am grateful for other church families that you have created local church families all over the world, all over the world. And you love them. I'm just so thankful for how you have structured even just eldership in churches. I rejoice and celebrate that Liam could become an elder at Village Church. I'm just very grateful, Lord. And uh, Lord, in a few minutes, we're going to celebrate communion, but Lord, would you just, would you well up in us sincere confession 
and at the same time, sincere gratitude for the cross. We love you. We praise you. We do all this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Well, if you are new with us, maybe you're visiting from a different church and you have trusted in Christ, I wanna invite you as we partake of communion in just a a few minutes here, um, I wanna invite you to partake with us. Maybe you are here and you have never trusted in Jesus before and you you are sensing that today is the day that you are gonna believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, I wanna encourage you, confess your sins and ask him to save you and the promise of God is that he will forgive anybody who trusts in Christ. Today, you literally can be forgiven of everything and be given the Holy Spirit. That is, that is an amazing, awesome gift. And if you're ready to trust in Christ, I'd love to, uh, for you to share that with somebody that, that either brought you or somebody in front or myself. And, but I wanna give you a simple next step. And the simple next step for you is, would you partake of communion with us? And let this partaking be your personal proclamation that you have made a decision to confess your sins and to believe in Jesus Christ. And again, we'd love to help you take a next step if that is you. Uh, The elements are over to my left, your right near that column. Also my right, your left over here, and then between the double doors. We're gonna have a time of silence and you're free to any time to get up and grab elements. Um, And then what we're gonna do is we're gonna sing a song together. Would you hold the elements until afterwards and then we're gonna participate and partake together as a symbol of our unity that is in Jesus. So let's have a time of confession and thanksgiving to God silently.